Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. Deceptions podcast. Hi, John Dixon here. We are almost ready to begin our next season of Undeceptions, season eight, if you can believe that. I'm super excited to share it with you, and it begins mid-November. In the meantime, I happen to be in Israel right now, taking 45 of my new besties around the country in a history tour that I do regularly over here. So in the lead up to the next season, I've asked some friends to step up to the microphone and give us their thoughts. First up, is Sam Albury, a pastor, author, and speaker. And his latest book is called What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. It's definitely worth a look. Anyway, I'll talk to you soon. Here is Sam. I can pinpoint the exact moment I had to admit I was finally middle-aged. I was travelling through London and needed to make a very tight connection at Paddington Station. The plan was to bound up the stairs from the underground station, glance quickly at the departures board to note the platform of my connection, and get to the train just in time to board before it left, and to do all of this without having to break my stride. In reality, I did bound up the stairs from the underground, I did glance at the departures board, and then stopped. I couldn't read any of the information on the board. It was a digital display and all the characters had a blurry halo. I could only make out the individual letters and numbers by walking right up to the board and squinting at it. For years I'd prided myself on having great eyesight. Now I knew I needed glasses. But I still hadn't realised just how much I needed them. When I finally got them, I could now see the departures board at Paddington Station, but what surprised me was just how clearly I could now see everything else. It was like the whole world was in HD. I could now see distant trees and buildings in crisp detail. Everything was now more focused, much clearer. 
I had a similar experience when I started reflecting on two words that occur repeatedly in the New Testament. The words, in Christ. These words are used to describe the true reality of Christian believers. It's a doctrine theologians call union with Christ. The idea that when someone comes to faith in Jesus, they are united to him spiritually. They're not just followers of Christ. They are in some sense now situated in him. This idea is key to understanding the heart of the Christian faith. It brings it all into sharper vision, as we'll see. The language of being in Christ, it turns out, is the New Testament's main way to describe what we call being a Christian. One of the surprises when someone opens the pages of the New Testament is how little the word Christian actually comes up. Given this is the book for Christians, you'd expect it to be littered with the words Christian and Christianity. But the word Christian only comes three times. One of these is referring to how the word Christian was initially used as a nickname for these new followers of Jesus. It was meant to be a form of mockery, like calling them little Christlets. But it evidently stuck, and, well, Christians have been very happy to carry the label ever since. But whereas the word Christian only comes up three times in the New Testament, the language of being in Christ comes up over 200 times. The Apostle Paul alone uses it more than 160 times. Let a Bible fall open on the page of virtually any New Testament epistle, and you'll see this kind of language, often several times. It's pretty much everywhere. This is the New Testament's default way of speaking of followers of Jesus. But it's not ours. Let me give you just a couple of quick examples. In his second letter to the Corinthians, there's a place where Paul needs to describe an anonymous Christian man. If we were writing this today, we'd probably say something like, I know this Christian guy. But Paul writes, I know a man in Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 2. To Paul, that is the most natural and obvious way to talk about another follower of Jesus. And he's presuming it's the most natural and obvious way for his readers too. He doesn't have to include a sidebar explaining what being in Christ means. He can just refer to a man in Christ and everyone knows what he's talking about. That was the go-to terminology. Similarly, the book of Acts describes a surge in people coming to faith in Christ. We might expect it to say, a lot of people joined the church. Or, a lot of people became Christians. But in Acts it says, Believers were added to the Lord. That's Acts chapter 5 verse 14. Not added to the Christian movement, but added to the Lord. When people become Christians, they're not just joining some group or a religious institution. They're joining Christ himself. They're being added to Jesus. Here's why this matters. The New Testament is the founding document for Christianity. And if the New Testament's main language for describing followers of Jesus is different to ours, it likely means its understanding of what it means to be a Christian is different to ours. This isn't just a case of you say tomato, I say tomato. If we're seeing the Christian life differently to how the New Testament does, it likely means there are things we're missing, which is where my new glasses come in. When we think of someone having a relationship with Jesus, I suspect we tend to think in terms of a voter's relationship to a political party or a fan's relationship to a sports team. We might think in terms of following, of loyalty, of allegiance, perhaps even of reverence. But the idea that we're in Christ 
suggests something far more intimate, more organic, more precious. It makes such a difference. Jesus speaks of his people's union with him as being like the relationship a branch has to a tree. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches, John 15. His people's connection with him is vital. He's not remote, only able to inspire from across a vast distance of space and time. His very life and nourishment flow into those who are his. Spiritual health is derived from him. The Christian life is not lived only in the strength of each individual believer. Being in Christ also speaks of intimacy. Jesus described himself as the Christ, the Son of the Father, the Saviour. He also described himself as the Bridegroom. Throughout the whole Bible, God presents himself not just as a deity up in heaven, but as a divine husband to his people on earth. They, in turn, are not just described as his subjects, but as his bride. So when Jesus announces himself as the Bridegroom, it's clear what he's claiming. Those Bible passages that speak of a believer's relationship with Jesus in marital terms begin to come into clearer focus when we understand the idea of a union with Christ. In fact, the New Testament goes as far as to say that it's a relationship with Jesus that is the ultimate marriage, and our earthly marriages are but a shadow of this greater reality. This also makes sense of what lies at the very heart of the Christian faith, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus always claimed his death would be for others, on their behalf. Christians understand the cross to be a form of vicarious atonement, Jesus taking the place, bearing the sins, and enduring the punishment of sinners, and sinners in turn being made righteous in God's sight. But we might ask how it can be just for a God who in the Old Testament condemns punishing the innocent and acquitting the guilty to seemingly do just that through Jesus' death. But it's the very idea of a believer being one with Jesus that makes sense of this. In a marriage, the estate of the one rightly becomes the estate of the other. So it is with Christ. He's no third party being punished for someone else. He's the bridegroom of his people, utterly one with them, in such a way that their sins can be absorbed by him and his righteousness shared with them. Being in Christ is what makes all of this possible. The cross is clearer when seen through the lens of this doctrine. In fact, everything is. Christian belief, Christian hope, Christian community, all of it makes more sense, all of it comes into sharper focus when we realize that a Christian, first and foremost, is someone who is in Christ. Podcast.